let's go ahead and open our Bibles to the Gospel of John. I have the privilege and honor of taking on the next passage with you in the Gospel of John. As many of you know, we've been in the Gospel of John for a little while now, and we will be uh, in the Gospel of John for a lot uh, of time before we're all done. We're in chapter 3. We're going to be beginning uh, to read. Uh, what we're dealing with t- this morning is verses 9 down to 16, although I want to start reading by uh, the first part of chapter 3. So I'm going to read just to set this passage in context. I think it's helpful to start reading at chapter 3. So if you don't have a Bible with you, grab the, the one that's in the pew ahead of you. You'll be on page 887 and 888 of the Pew Bible. So that's where we'll get started. I'm going to read verse 1 all the way down to verse 16, and then I'll read, uh, or then I'll pray, and then we'll get get to work in this passage. Um, Happy Mother's Day. Verse 1. John 3, 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher Of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who is descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray together. Lord, ask for your help.
What I need to do this morning is not possible without you. Suppose I could read this passage. I suppose I could maybe understand a little bit of it. But without your spirit, there would be no life in these words. And so I ask, by your grace, that you would send your spirit to help me, your servant, to speak your word to your people. In order that they may see your son and believe in him. And have eternal life. Come now, I, I pray, and do this for his sake. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I have to be honest with you about something. I was shocked by last week's sermon. I was shocked by it, not by the text that we dealt with, but by your response to last week's sermon. Or rather, your lack of response to last week's sermon. I was expecting emails, if I'm honest. Some pushback. I got some. I was expecting more. So I I thought about why that might be, and I, I think there might be four reasons why there was so little pushback to last week's sermon. The first reason, I think, maybe was that I didn't explain the passage well enough. And so the controversy that was in the first part of chapter 3 that we just read, that controversy, it didn't, it didn't get explained very well. That's one reason. Another reason is maybe you, you heard the controversy and you, you went home last week and you, and you wrestled with the controversy and you realized that that passage, it, it's consistent across the scripture, that that's true. Third reason, maybe, was that you heard the controversy, you wrestled what with, with what was said about the controversy, you disagreed with it, but you were too afraid to send me an email. Don't be afraid to send me an email. After every sermon, we have a little slide that says, send me emails. That's what it's there for. And the fourth reason I could think of is, you really just weren't paying attention last week at all, so that could have been the reason, and that's all right, right? So... Because we didn't have a lot of pushback from the controversy last week, I'm going to give you a mulligan, a do-over. Give you another shot at it. So let me restate the controversy of the passage from last week and set up what we're dealing with this morning. So here's the controversy. There are some people who believe in Jesus, but they are not going to heaven because they are spiritually dead. And the only way to get undead is if God the Holy Spirit moves into a person's life and takes their deadness and brings them to life, something that Jesus calls being born again. And here's where it gets really controversial. This coming alive thing that you have to have in order to go to heaven, 
it's not something you can do. You can't will yourself alive. You, you didn't will your first birth, you don't will your second birth. That's the controversy. So you work on that. You go back to that text, you see if I understood the Lord correctly there at the beginning of chapter 3. And, and just, by the way, make a practice of doing this. When I preach something, go to the Bible and see if what I say carries the weight of the Scriptures. You understand that my authority as a preacher only extends as far as the Scriptures. As long as it accords with the Scriptures, then that's where you, you accept it. But the Bible is the authority, not me. And by the way, you're going to need to make a practice of doing this over and over again in the Gospel of John. We're going to spend a year in John, and you're going to need to be, become good at this, because there's lots of things in John which sort of don't make sense. For, for example, in John 10, 26, Jesus says, you don't believe because you are not among my sheep. Notice, he didn't say, by sheep he means his people. He didn't say, you're not my sheep because you don't believe. He said the opposite of that. Believing doesn't make you a Christian. Being a Christian makes you believe. There are verses like this all over, John, and you're going to have to wrestle with them and see what the Lord means. So wrestle with them and work on understanding them. As, as Christians, as students of the Scriptures, this is what we have to, to do. So that's why I say email me. If you're not sure um, about what I, something I say, email me. Don't believe what I say just because I say it. Believe what I say because God said it. So part of the reason why last week was controversial was because it was partial. Last week was the what. What you need is to be born again. So that's the what. This week, the Lord gives us the how and the why. So last week was all about what you need. Be born again. You're dead. You need to come alive. Today and next week as well, we're going to deal with the how that happens. And then next week, we're going to deal with why these things happen. So that's how it's teed up this morning. That's what we're going to be dealing with. I have three points to make. And then we'll save some time at the end for um, a few words to mothers. So the first point is this. If you, have a, if you came in, you got a program. It's on the back side of your program. You can follow along if you like. The first point that we'll make this morning is um, we don't know what we don't know. We don't know Christ, so we're dead. My second point is Jesus came to tell us what we didn't know. And then my third point is you come alive when you see Jesus lifted up. And then, of course, because it's Mother's Day, we'll talk about snakes. All right. If, if, uh, um, so anyway, let's, let's just get to work in, in this section. If, if you're new to Cornerstone Pickle, you're probably like, what the heck kind of church is this? I just came to get my picture taken. Um, well, stick it out, Lord willing, in a half an hour or so, you'll feel better about your decision not to sleep in. Um, well, no promises. Let's get to work. Verse 9. Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can these things be? Jesus said, switch my slide here. Jesus said, you're a teacher in Israel and you don't understand these things? 
What I say to you, we we speak of what we know, we bear witness to what we've seen, but you don't receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you don't believe those, how can you believe when I tell you heavenly things? In 1849, a Hungarian doctor with the sweet name of Ignaz noticed there was a, a much higher incident of death of mothers bearing children in hospitals as compared to mothers bearing children to midwives. So he investigated this in his own hospital, and he learned that the sickness uh, was high in patients whose doctors had just come from doing an autopsy. The proposed theory that Ignaz came up with was that maybe the autopsy had something to do with it. And so he asked his doctors to wash their hands before they delivered a child. And you might guess what the results were. The fatality rate of childbirth went, went through the floor. Today we read this and we think, Well, duh, wash your hands before you perform surgery. Are you kidding me? The reason we know that and we think that is because we understand there are such things called germs. But in 1847, they didn't have quite as clear an understanding of, what is it, microbiology? They were smart men, well-educated, but they didn't know. They couldn't see germs So eventually other doctors like Louis Pasteur and Robert Koch would come along and develop the germ theory of disease and viruses were discovered and all that. Just wonder how many lives were lost in surgery simply because they didn't have the right information. But you can't blame the doctors. They were acting on whatever information they had at the time. Smart men just didn't know. There are only two ways to know something. You can either discover it on your own, or you can be told. I would suspect many of you did not discover the reality of germs, but you were told about them. So you can either discover something for yourself to learn it, or you can be told, be taught. And that's what Jesus is doing here with Nicodemus. Nicodemus asks, how can these things be? In other words... How can this happen? How can a person be born again? How can a person be born of the Spirit of God? Sort of what he's asking. And I appreciate Nicodemus' honesty. Don't you? He's a teacher in Israel. He's a Pharisee. He knew the Bible. And yet he says, how can this happen? I don't get it. Some months ago, I had lunch with a young man who is a professed atheist, and I respect that. I mean, at least this guy had given it some thought about the existence of God. I appreciated that. He was well-reasoned and a pretty smart kid, but I have a hard time with the atheistic position. Um, And the reason is we don't know what we don't know. Those doctors who, when Ignaz told all of his fellow doctors, 
if you should watch your hands because that will keep your patients alive. They didn't believe him for a while. Because they didn't know what they didn't know. They were convinced clean hands had nothing to do with a, a, a woman and her health. Atheism makes hard-lined, unconditional assertions that there is no God. And this presupposes you've checked. I don't know, the universe is like 13 billion light years across. You've checked it? It seems, I don't know. Forgive me if this is being dismissive, but I think that seems arrogant. I have a far better time with the agnostic position. Agnostics just say, I, I, don't, I don't know, could be, but I don't know. Maybe there's not even a way to know. I think the best scientists have to be, at the very least, cautiously agnostic. You don't have all the data. You don't know what you don't know. Agnosticism admits that God is possible, and I think that is at least honest. Because we don't know something. And so we either discover it or we're told about it. And that's what Jesus is doing here with Nicodemus. He tells him. He essentially says, we can only teach what we know. We can only testify to what we've seen. You put witnesses on the stand who are witnesses because they've seen it. You can't teach what you don't know. And then Jesus says, what we know about the new birth, we told you, but y'all didn't believe us. By the way, all of the yous in verses 11 and 12 that Jesus uses, they're plural. So they're plural. So you all. So like if, if a southerner translated your Bible, it would say y'all. Or if or, or somebody from Kentucky was your Bible translator, it'd say yuns. What the heck is yuns? We should all be thankful that Kentuckians didn't translate the Bible. Love Kentuckians, but I do not understand what they say when they talk. So verse 12 If you don't understand earthly things, how can you understand heavenly things? It means I've, I've given you an earthly metaphor. You must be born again. Like you were born the first time, you've got to be born again. It's an earthly metaphor. And Jesus says, there are deeper levels of meaning here that I need to explain to you, but you're not going to get it because you don't get the, the earthly things, so you can't understand. The heavenly things. So you don't know what you don't know unless you discover it or someone tells you. And so here's the good news, and here's point two. Nicodemus and Cornerstone. You don't know what you don't know unless you discover it or unless someone tells you. And the good news is someone done told you. Someone done told you. Now I sound like the Kentuckian. Verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven, except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Two ways to know that heaven is real, that God really exists. Two ways, you can either discover God on your own, to go to heaven on your own and learn that it's there, or have someone come and tell you. So you can either discover it on your own. So go to heaven. Check it out. Yep, there's heaven. Yep, there's God. Seems legit. Come back. Good. Problem with this, how are you going to get there? 
make a tall ladder. I don't know. We tried that once. It didn't work out. Can't fly there. Pixie dust is a scam, turns out. Besides, I'm not sure heaven's like a place. Like you can just drive to, fly to. So you can't just go to heaven and discover heaven on your own. No one has went to heaven and come back and told us, all right, guys, here's the deal. Here's what heaven is like. Here's what God is like. No one has ascended into heaven to verify and know. It can't be discovered that way. No one has ascended. However, someone has descended. The Son of Man has descended from heaven and told us, yep, it's real. The Son of Man, spoiler alert, that's Jesus. Whenever Jesus talks about himself, a lot of times he'll call himself the Son of Man. It's a really interesting phrase. He came from heaven and he told us what we didn't know. If you remember, when, if you were here when we went through John chapter 1, there was a verse in John chapter 1, in verse 18, it says, no one has ever seen God. Then John says, the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. God the Son has come and made God the Father known. No one has ascended into heaven except He who has descended from heaven, Jesus. He has made him known. Jesus makes God known. How does he do this? How does he explain God to us? How does he make him known to us? The answer to that is verse 14 and 15. Third point. The Son of Man must be lifted up. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So that's the how of the new birth. just, Just look at those two verses. Just when the conversation couldn't get any more confusing, Jesus goes and starts talking about snakes. I'm not going to assume... Everyone here knows what Jesus is talking about. Maybe you do. Nicodemus knew. And I'm, I'm assuming some of you know, but I'm not going to assume everyone knows. So let me try and help bring some clarity to what the Lord has said here in verse 14. So if you have a Bible, you're welcome. You can, I don't have the slides, so you can just have to listen. But if you have a Bible, go back to the book of Numbers. And that's in the Old Testament. So it's like the fourth book of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Um, I think I may even have the, if you have a pew Bible, it's page 129. We're going to read Numbers chapter 21 and get some understanding about what the Lord means as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. What in the world does that have to do with what Jesus is talking about? The new birth. Numbers 21, beginning at verse 4, which is going to be a handful of verses, not too many. Numbers 21, verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people, this is Israel, 
God's people in the wilderness after they had been taken out of slavery in Egypt. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Look again back at John 3. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... So must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. Are you catching what Jesus is saying? This is the how of the new birth. This is how spiritually dead people come alive. Whenever Jesus uses the phrase lifted up in the Gospel of John, He's always referring to the cross. As the serpent was lifted up, so Jesus will be lifted up. So he's talking about the cross. Lean into that image for a minute. Snakes are horrible things in the Bible. If you've read the first couple of chapters, the first three chapters of the book, of the Bible itself, you'll learn that it was the enemy who appeared as a snake who led Adam and Eve into the first sin, and that infected all of humanity. It was a snake that the Lord sent to Israel to judge them of their sin. Snakes are horrible things in the Bible. And Jesus takes this event in Numbers and he shows the deeper meaning. Here's what he's saying. We are all like Israel in the wilderness. God has provided for us things like food, shelter, clothing, comfortable seats, air conditioning, protection, freedom. God has, pro- has provided these things for us, and we speak against God. We become impatient toward Him like Israel. We loathe this worthless food. 
We, this created being, defying his holy commands. And we speak against the infinite one. And God has judged us with sin. Our defiance against God, this thing that we rebel against God, this is called sin. And sin, like venom from the snakes, it is toxic and it leads to death. We've all been bitten by the snake. The venom of sin flows in our blood. And without an antidote, all of us will die. Not only a physical death, but a spiritual one. And we will spend eternity apart from God. Sin is a deadly poison, killing all of us. And without the antidote, we will spend eternity in hell. But God was merciful to Israel. And God is merciful to you today, Cornerstone. God told Moses, beat a bronze, beat some bronze and make it into a serpent and lift that serpent up on a pole. And Israel would look upon the snake on the pole and they would be healed. Those infected by the poison would be healed. And in the same way, Jesus says, as the Son of Man, as I am lifted up on the pole of the cross, my people will look on me and they will be healed. And they will not die, but they will live forever. So if you hear nothing else this morning, Cornerstone, hear this. Your God turned his son into a snake for you. Jesus became a snake to save you. It's it's a hard picture to paint, but it's, it's true. My favorite verse in the Bible goes like this. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. He made him to be sin. Yes, it's true that Jesus carried your sin, but it goes beyond that. Jesus became your sin. Our selfishness makes Jesus selfish. Our lies make Jesus a liar. Our perversions make Jesus a pervert. Our prejudice makes Jesus the racist. God made him who knew no sin to be sin. So that we would become the righteousness of God, the judgment deserved by you and I for our sin was laid on him. God made Jesus a snake and lifted him up 
and that awful act of injustice on his own son is your cure. Like Israel looked at the snake on the pole, you and I look to God the Son on the cross. So God lifted him up. And all we have to do, friends, is look. Just look. Why would God do this? Why punish his own son for penalty you deserved, I deserved? Why would he do such a thing? Well, I'll let Jesus answer that question. It's in the next verse. It's the end zone verse. It goes like this. God loved you so much. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. The answer to why is spelled with four letters, L-O-V-E. God loved you. That's why he gave his son. That's why he would spill the blood of his own son to forgive you of your rebellion. So look upon the cross this morning. Look and be saved. So what does this have to do with mothers on Mother's Day? The beauty of the gospel is that it is, uh, to borrow a phrase, omni-relevant, meaning it's relevant in every way. There are, I sat in my office on Friday and I thought of, I don't know, half a dozen different points of relevance between the gospel and motherhood. So, but then as I started writing them down, I filled up a few pages and I was like, this is too much. I'm just going to give you two, just two this morning. So there's a thousand points of contact between the gospel and motherhood, but I'm just going to give you two and this is where we'll wrap up. Motherhood is a picture of the gospel. Motherhood is a picture of the gospel. As a mother, you get to live the reality of the gospel in a way that is unique to mothers. Motherhood is a unique relationship in that between two people, One party of this relationship gives almost everything, and the other party in this relationship gives literally nothing. (laughs) Feed, clean, change, clean, feed, change, clean, ad nauseum, an endless sequence of one-sided giving. And what do you get in return as a mother? My four-year-old, Ethan, has recently decided that he will use the potty full-time, which my wife and I consider to be a giant, giant victory in our life. You understand, my four-year-old has known how to use the potty for probably two years. But like any 
dictator. He decides things on his own, (laughs) the way he decides them in his own timing. And he won't be told, but he's just decided randomly that he's going to use the body. That, That means for us, it probably doesn't mean anything to you, but for us, that means for quite a while now, Lord willing, we will not be changing diapers. We sat down, by the way, I have four kids. We sat down and we figured out how many diapers we have changed in our lifetime. Do you want to know? It's over 25,000. And I've changed at least 100 of them. At least 100. So give me some credit. Young mothers live in this endless cycle of mouth feeding, face washing, diaper changing, spit up cleaning, laundry doing, fight breaking. It's give, give, give. And then when mothers have given almost everything that they have and they're exhausted and frustrated, it's lunchtime. It's an almost completely one-sided relationship with this tiny little person who much of the time could care nothing whatsoever for you until they need something. One comedian said living with babies is like living with a bad roommate. They're unemployed. They don't pay rent. They keep insane hours. Their hygiene is horrible. They eat your food. They throw up on you, and then they wet themselves. (laughs) Motherhood is give, give, give. Whether your kids are six or 16 or six months, it's give, give, give. Yet moms keep doing it. Why would moms keep doing this? Why keep giving to someone who does not give anything in return? One other relationship works like that. Only one. The one between the father and his children. God gave everything to you. Got nothing in return. So moms have this unique opportunity to live out the gospel every day to these little people. No matter how selfish they are, keep loving them, keep giving to them because that's just like your Jesus. That's just what he does. Lay down your lives to your kids. Which brings me to my second point of contact. Motherhood is discipleship. As a mother or grandmother, God has placed an eternal soul into your care. These are not just little people. They're not just little sinners. They're just, they're little eternal souls. And your role, mama, is to disciple them, to lead them to Jesus. Here's what I mean. As the Son of Man was lifted up as the cure for sin for the whole world, lift up Jesus and let your babies see Him. You're raising little sinners. If you're not sure of that, they'll remind you. Their antidote to the bickering, ungratefulness, selfishness. The antidote is the same as your antidote. See Jesus. Lift it up. Believe in Him. 
So show them Jesus on the cross, Mama. Lift him up. When they're selfish, tell them, Mama's selfish too. Mama's selfish too, and Mommy sins against God the same way you sin against God. Then show them Jesus, lift it up, that Jesus became selfish for their sake, and teach them how to repent. When they tell lies, tell Mama tells lies too. But God made Jesus a liar for both of us. Let's look to him and repent. Help your babies see Jesus lifted up. Motherhood is discipleship. If God has given you one disciple, disciple that one. If God has given you four, disciple that one. If God has given you eight, disciple those eight. Help disciple those little souls. Lift up Jesus and tell them, look, let's pray. Father, I thank you. Because you, motivated because of your greatness and the glory of your grace, loved us in this way. That you would send your son to become sin for us and to die in order that we would not die, but that we would live. I pray that you would encourage mothers this morning to continue through diaper changing, arguments over what to wear, fights over the length of a skirt or the time of a curfew, and to remember this little soul God has entrusted to their care and help the mothers here to exemplify the gospel for those little ones. In Jesus' name.